You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Capital One takes a market hit from its data loss. CISA warns of vulnerabilities in small general aviation aircraft. Another parish in Louisiana is hit with a cyber attack. The SEC's top cyber enforcer is moving on from the commission. And diplomats go to cyber summer school in Estonia. It's not a coding boot camp, but it should give them the lay of the cyber land. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. Capital One's reputation and stock price have taken a hit from the data breach the financial services company disclosed this week, the Wall Street Journal reports. Its share price dropped almost 6% on Tuesday. The company has since its founding seen itself as a technologically savvy operation, Corporate folklore describes Capital One's self-image as being a tech company that delivers financial services. They were an early adopter of the cloud, for one thing, and the misconfigured firewall that escaped notice is what gave the alleged attacker access to their data. The cloud is good and even good for security, but it can't be used casually or inattentively. This isn't a set-it-and-forget-it proposition. Another journal headline calls the incident an example of the insider threat, but it seems instead to be a familiar case of misconfiguration allowing unauthorized access to data in the cloud. The accused hacker, Paige Thompson, seems to have had the technical wherewithal to pull the caper off, but in other respects seemed to struggle with problems with living, again as reported by the Wall Street Journal. As Wired notes, she didn't cover her tracks particularly effectively. The accounts in which she talked about her activities were easily traceable, and Tor doesn't amount to a cloak of invisibility. Forbes says that Thompson may be under investigation in connection with other incidents, some involving at least one state government, others involving other companies. The Department of Justice isn't commenting on the possibility. Forbes bases its conclusion on things people have observed in accounts that may be associated with Thompson. Thompson is widely identified as having worked for Amazon, but that was a few years ago, and it seems unlikely that any insider knowledge Thompson may have acquired in Amazon had much, if anything, to do with the attack. The misconfiguration would seem to explain how an attacker got in. Capital One isn't the first to suffer from this sort of mishap, and they're unlikely to be the last. For its own part, Amazon has said it wasn't affected by the incident. Capital One is now subject to at least one class action suit, initiated by a Connecticut man who says he's a Capital One customer whose personal information was compromised in the breach. It's expected that more lawsuits will follow. New York's Attorney General has also opened an investigation. Moving to aviation cyber vulnerabilities, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, has issued a warning based on research by Rapid7. 
The research describes a way in which an attacker could compromise the avionics controller area network, that's the CAN bus, aboard an aircraft. As CISA put it in their warning, quote, an attacker with physical access to the aircraft could attach a device to an avionics CAN bus that could be used to inject false data, resulting in incorrect readings in avionic equipment. The researchers have outlined that engine telemetry readings, compass and attitude data, altitude, airspeeds, and angle of attack could all be manipulated to provide false measurements to the pilot. The researchers have further outlined that a pilot relying on instrument readings would be unable to distinguish between false and legitimate readings, which could result in loss of control of the affected aircraft. The immediate recommendation for mitigation of this risk is to restrict physical access to aircraft. CISA hopes that aircraft manufacturers will address the vulnerability with upgrades and with new production. A number of the stories reporting CISA's warning are illustrated with stock photographs of airliners, but this might be misleading. The study on which the warning was based didn't look at airliners. Patrick Kiley, the researcher at Rapid7 who looked into the problem, was talking about small aircraft. Indeed, from his blog post, it appears he got interested in the problem while working on his own kit-built airplane. He worked on two CAN bus implementations that are popular with small aircraft pilots. If you're familiar with earlier research into vulnerabilities associated with CAN bus implementation in automobiles, these findings will have a familiar ring. The CAN bus is a standard protocol for vehicles that allows their internal systems and devices to communicate electronically. Kylie shared his findings with CISA, Idaho National Laboratory, the Federal Aviation Administration, and the Aviation Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the AISAC. He urges other researchers to do likewise. He found it a valuable exercise. He also points out in his blog that general aviation's reliance on physical security at airports to protect airplane systems may have made the sector less attentive to cyber risk than the similar automotive sector. That is, you park your car on the street and usually lock it, but otherwise people can gain access to it. So the automobile sector has paid some attention to things like network segmentation and other security controls. That hasn't yet been the case with general aviation, Kylie thinks. The Women's Society of Cyber Jitsu is holding a special cyber exhibition fundraiser next week in Las Vegas. They're calling it the Wicked Six Cyber Games, and we're proud to be media partners for the event. Jessica Gulick is CEO at Katzai and Vice President of the Women's Society of Cyber Jitsu. We had this idea, um, why not try to take this to Black Hat and really start to um, encourage people to recognize cybersecurity as a sport, um, as an e-sport specifically, uh, because it, it brings such a great dynamic um, to the conversation around cyber skills, as well as playing as a team um, as well as the career aspect of cybersecurity. So we wanted to focus first on college students, a co-ed competition, bring them out, have some excitement like you would at a football game. So much of cybersecurity in the media really goes to uh, talking about major hacks. And we talk about um, infamous hackers, if you will. We wanted to spend some time on really celebrating um, those people that are honing their skills for good. Yeah, it's interesting to me, too, because I, I think um, we were all aware of that stereotype of that, you know, loner sitting in their basement, uh, hacking away at a, at a keyboard, you know, at all hours of the night. And so I think of the emphasis here on on team sports, uh, that's really something uh, fresh. You know, it's interesting that that you say that because I feel that way as well. 
in the reality, and reality has a vote, in reality, when you're <laughs> running a cyber team, uh, it's a team, right? It's not, you're not doing cyber defense and it's one individual working from home. They are usually working together. And whether it's a penetration test, an adversary emulation, um, or any kind of defensive tactic, real cybersecurity happens in teams. They happen in operation centers 24 by seven. And so it's important to have that team dynamic. And that to me is always fun, right? Um, I remember the first time that I went on a penetration test uh, exercise, if you will. We had it at a client, I was the project manager. I was expecting everybody to open up their laptops and just start attacking the network. It's not what happened. What I found was it was a heist. They planned it out and they were very careful on what um, steps they took when they took it. There was a lot of communication. There was this best athlete where they would literally rotate chairs. Okay, your turn. Looks like I got through. Next, your turn. And there was this team dynamic that really excited me. And that's really what got me started in, in wanting to be supportive of cyber competitions like this. And I, and I think that part of the story is not being told out there. And if more people heard about it, more people would be interested in playing or having this as a career. Can you give us some insights into the actual formation of the teams themselves? Did, did, did some of the teams came come, come to you uh, preformed or have you been putting folks together yourselves or a mix of both? So for this first year, what we wanted to do is focus on college teams because many of the colleges already have um, a team identified. Mm. Uh, we wanted to provide um, a format so that they could create a team if they didn't have it. Uh, for example, community colleges might not typically play in this arena, and we still wanted to allow for that kind of um, opportunity. So we put out parameters. We um, did a lot of scouting, if you will, reaching out to college teams we knew already existed, either through individuals that we know or online through social media. And we had 21 collegiate teams come together. Uh, there are requirements. They have to have six players, four active players, and one of those active players need to be a female. Um, but for the most part, they have a lot of flexibility. Right. Uh, but we'll also have an opportunity, because this is a fundraiser, for some of the adults that are walking in that, um, you know, either they, they feel like, hey, I could do that or I'm curious. They'll have the opportunity to donate and put their, their fingers on a keyboard and try out a mission or two themselves. So can you give us a little background information on the Women's Society of Cyber Jitsu? So the Women's Society of Cyber Jitsu was started in 2012. And our mission really is to advance women into cyber careers. We also have Cyber Jitsu Girls, which reaches down all the way to middle school and provides some programs for them, uh, both of which are across the nation. Uh, it's a really exciting program. Um, it's not competing with training. This is really about opportunity for workshops and to really taste and try out your skills. We have over 2,000 members and they're ranging of a variety of skill sets. We have seen quite a number of them coming in from IT careers, so they're crossovers or what we call boomerangs coming back into the career. Mm -hmm. And they just wanna to belong to an organization to allow for them to learn new skills and, and network and understand where they wanna take their career. That's Jessica Gulick. The Wicked Six Cyber Games are August 8th at the Luxor Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. You can find out more at their website, wickedsix.com. A fourth school district in the state of Louisiana has sustained a cyber attack. The Advocate reports that Tangipahoa Parish is the latest victim. 
Some, although not all, of the attacks on the four parishes so far affected have involved ransomware, but the identity and motives of the attackers remains unclear. The SEC's top cyber enforcer is moving on after 15 years with the commission. Robert A. Cohen, who led the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Enforcement Cyber Unit since its inception in 2017, will be leaving the agency in August, the SEC announced. And finally, in its now familiar role of a country that punches far above its weight in cyber matters, Estonia offered a summer school for NATO and European Union diplomats designed to give them some necessary familiarity with the issues, technologies, and strategies that shape international relations in cyberspace. One of the objectives was to familiarize them with basic hacking techniques like what's a botnet, what's a distributed denial-of-service attack, They don't need to be coders, but knowing the lay of the land in cyberspace is undeniably a good thing. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. Uh, We had an article come by from Scientific American, and uh, this was titled, The Quantum Internet is Emerging One Experiment at a Time. Uh, We've got some progress being made here when it comes to uh, quantum things in the digital world. I think that there's some early progress here. There are certainly people talking about uh, making progress 
Uh, and what's going on here really is, uh, you know, we, we know a lot about, or we've heard a lot about quantum computers, which you can think of as, you know, local computation devices that are relying on quantum mechanics to do things that we can't do classically. Uh, people have probably heard about quantum key distribution, uh, which allows two computers to use quantum mechanics in order to agree on a classical cryptographic key. And what they're talking about here is basically going to the next level and thinking about what it might look like to have a fully quantum internet, meaning uh, to allow computers, quantum computers, to be able to communicate quantum states with each other, uh, fully general quantum states with each other, and what that might allow. So people are just, I, I think, really only starting to think about this. Uh, people are doing initial experiments to try to determine feasibility. And people are also thinking about what that might mean and what kind of applications that might allow. Yeah, one of the things the article dug into here, which I found fascinating, was... Uh, that thing that Einstein called spooky action at a distance with um, you know, quantum entanglement. Well, what are the implications of that? Right. So quantum entanglement would basically mean uh, essentially that you have two different uh, entities who are able to share, let's say, pieces of a quantum state. And then when any one of those entities would uh, measure the state that they hold at their side, it would instantaneously cause a change in the state held by the other party at the other, at the other side some distance away. And that's the spooky action at a distance that you were referring to. And this could allow potentially, um, well, it's not clear what it might allow, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think you know, one of the things is that people are talking about using these kind of, uh, of protocols for secure communication, because that action at a distance would be something that an attacker would not be able to observe. It's, not, I mean, it's, it's truly instantaneous, right? We're talking, you know, faster than the speed of light kind of stuff. Well, yes? so, so you have to be a little bit careful. It, it's true that it's instantaneous. Uh, it does not allow you to communicate faster than the speed of light. Oh. Uh, but it but it still, it does give you some other properties like this privacy I was talking about, or it allows you to basically defer certain choices until a later point in time. Um, and there are cryptographic applications and uh, distributed computing applications that you can do once you can share entangled states like that. And that's the kind of thing that people are talking about. The quantum key distribution that we already have some examples of uh, experimentally uh, is not sharing entangled states. Uh, and so this is basically the next level up. Hmm. And, and any sense for what we're talking about in, in terms of a timeline? Is this the sort of thing that's decades away or sooner than that? <laughs> well, it's likely to uh, remain five years away for the next decade. Uh, <laughs> of course, yes, I understand. Uh, it's, it's really not clear, to be honest. I think there, there are so many things that have to happen before uh, this can become a reality. I think, you know, there are really two questions. One is, at what point can we say that, uh, in principle, we can build a quantum internet? And that's going to take some research and some experimental prototypes and things like that. And then there's the question of what time frame uh, this quantum internet actually gets built. And that's maybe more of a business decision and an, an economic decision, how much demand there is for these things. Uh, and that's really unclear. All right. Well, I, I have to admit uh, that this stuff is uh, incredibly fun, but also mind-bending and, and head-spinning and all that sort of stuff. But I'm glad I have folks like you to help explain it to me. So, <laughs> I Jonathan, appreciate whatever I can do to help. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On behalf of our listeners, uh, thanks to you. So, okay, Jonathan thanks. Katz, thanks for joining us. Okay. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.